Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Research Project Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week, we're joined by Zoe Shipley, graduates from our MA program in Interdisciplinary Japanese Studies to discuss her thesis research, Reality or Fantasy, 19th Century Photography of Japan. Zoe's research is based on a family heirloom, the Japan album, collected by her ancestor Robert T. Rhodes between 1877 and 1884. Made up of a collection of commercial photographs and his own work, Zoe addresses how the album highlights the difference between the reality of modernization occurring at the time with abstractions of tradition through costume and exaggerated scenes to pander to the foreign gaze. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Zoe. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. So first off, I'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interest have brought you there? Uh, yeah, so I'm interested in sort of uh, late 19th century tourist photography albums of Japan. I got there in kind of quite a roundabout route. I was doing a sort of a postgraduate research in biochemistry, but then after completing that, I ended up doing a master's in interdisciplinary Japanese studies, mainly because when I was doing my research in biochem, I did an extra module in the history and philosophy of science and really loved, in particular, learning about history and history as a discipline. So when I saw that this master's was offering to do history, international relations, art history, all these different aspects, in relation to Japanese studies, something that I've sort of been interested in since a child. I, you know, I went for it and it's been absolutely great. And then I found out when I was discussing with my relatives about my new course that there was this photography album in the family that was from the 1870s to 1880s. And when I managed to get my hands on it, I it was just an absolutely amazing object and it sparked my interest in uh, that area, which I continue to research into. Great. So a very diverse background then. Yes. <laughs> so the subject of your research, as you just mentioned, is a family heirloom, which is called the Japan Album, uh, compiled by one of your ancestors, Robert T. Rhodes. You write that there was an interesting mixture of commercially purchased and personal photographs. So how did you go about structuring your analysis? Yeah, so the album was compiled by my uncle's grandfather, Robert Turner Rhodes, who was in Japan from 1877 to 1884. Uh, where he was working for the Oriental Bank Corporation in Yokohama. And so the Japan album is actually quite um, a massive object and contains 262 photos of Rhodes' time there in Japan and another sort of 148 of his journey there from England. Um, and because it's, the photographs themselves are in really good condition, but the, the album is falling apart, so I was very careful to sort of minimise the amount I touched the album because it's so frail. So I, I went through and I, I took a photograph of every photograph within the album and I signed it each to number so I didn't have to keep flicking through and potentially damage it further. And whilst I was doing this, I wrote down sort of any either typed captions or written annotations that came with the photographs and any other notes or points of interest. And it's an incredibly interesting album because it's got this, uh, like I mentioned, in my writing, it's got this great mix of commercially purchased as well as personal photographs, which is quite unusual. Um, Japan at the time, the photography industry was 
highly commercialized and there was um, a whole bunch of places where you could buy photographs and this is sort of reflected in the album but the fact that it also has personal um, photographs adds an interesting element. Mm, yeah, definitely. Could you explain a bit why Royalty Road was in Japan at this time and some uh, the backstory there? Yes, yes. So um, he was working for the Oriental Bank Corporation and he was placed in Yokohama there. So he had a posting in Yokohama and spent uh, the majority of his time there, but also spent a bit of his time in Kobe. And there's sort of limited information available regarding exactly what he did. But there's a letter pertaining to the fact that he was part of the Yokohama Volunteer Fire Relief. Mm -hmm. And also in the album, there's a photograph of what's titled the Native Fire Brigade, (laughs) (laughs) which has um, a picture of the Yokohama Japanese Fire Brigade. So he did write a lot of letters home. Mm -hmm. And I know this because a distant cousin wrote a whole sort of family history where he refers to his letters, but these letters have unfortunately been lost. Um, However, I was able to relate back to his book to find out at least some of the background information regarding Road. Great. So the title of of this episode takes after your dissertation, reality or fantasy, which analyzes how accurately or inaccurately these photos portrayed life in Japan. Having spent some time researching memory studies myself, I'm fascinated with how much trust we tend to put into photographs, believing them to be a 100% true representation of the past, when it's really not so often the case. Having gone through the album, what kind of photos did you find gave a realistic portrayal of Meiji Japan? Uh, Which ones were blatantly exaggerated? And were there any in between? Um, I think that's an interesting question. So there's the commercial photographs, which... um, both the academic literature and in the time period was split into sort of uh, costumes and views. So costumes were generally quite stereotypical images of Japanese people um, uh, done in a stage setting, whereas views were pictures of uh, famous landscape or historical locations. So the, the costume photographs were very much a fantasy. They were um, always highly staged and they often showed rare or totally antiquated practices. So So, would this be like samurai or... Yes, exactly. So there was actually... Yeah, so it's that sort of thing. Um, Samurai... There was actually an image of a samurai in the album that was taken somewhere in the 1870s. And the the young man in the image is shown with a top knot. And it's after wearing that is banned. And the samurai class has been abolished. So it's a completely staged and recreated image. And there's a lot of these images... Are showing a range of different things, but they're they're done by actors. But there also was um, many images in the album of sort of beautiful Japanese women in traditional clothing. But there's a lot of interesting research around that, and often these women were um, prostitutes who are at the like sort of the lowest levels of society because they they catered to foreign men, which meant that they had incredibly hard and difficult lives. But none of this is conveyed in the photograph. See, that's the costume photographs, which I would say very much is a fantasy of Japan. But then you have the views photographs, which by definition show actual places, which would make you think that they showed the reality of Japan, which in a way they do, but they're not representative of Japan as a whole. In that it's much like when you go on holiday now, you take a photograph of the places that are of interest or considered must-visit places that may not be representative of the time there. And then finally, you have the personal photographs, which are defined as sort of photographs that were specific to Rode, uh, showing his times, or ones that were 
obviously not commercially purchased, um, which was slightly difficult to define because I could only tell if they were definitely personal, if they were, for example, blurry or of something that no one would buy. There's like a dirt corner, for example, and no one would purchase that. So there's probably a lot of photographs that I couldn't distinguish as being personal from the views photographs. But anyway, these personal photographs, the ones that are specific to road, do show the reality of life in Japan, but they show one individual's, and in, the, in this case, a foreigner's reality. So, for example, there's a picture of a sort of a big Western-style house that's titled The Doctor's House in Kobe, and it shows a whole bunch of Western men, all unnamed, and that's that was Rhodes' reality. It wasn't sort of the average reality. So in, in that case, it's displaying the reality of an individual in Japan. That's fascinating. So in broad terms, it sounds like many of the exaggerated photographs were taken with the foreign market in mind. Uh, do you know who specifically they were targeting and how they wanted Japan to be interpreted at this time? So slightly before Rhodes' time, the initial photographers were generally foreigners who came in with certain ideas and certain practices, including for example, Felix Beato was one of the early sort of foreign photographers who started off the stage settings, and these were very popular. And when, in the sort of 70s, when the sort of second generation of Japanese photographers were trained up and sort of took over the whole market, they continued these traditions. Obviously, they altered them, but they also continued the ones that had this economic benefit. People buy them. There was motivation there. And so, yes, these photographs, in particular the costume ones, were probably uh, directed at foreigners and also not just the ones who were living there, but the ones who were in, coming in sort of temporarily for trade. But the sort of the views photographs become more interesting in terms of distinguishing who the market was for, because all of the photographs could be bought by foreigners or Japanese people. I saw in a book that there's this particular photograph of Mitsui Bank, which was used for evidence that the fact that it was showing the modernization of Japan was shown uh, was taken as evidence that this photograph was used was for the Japanese market and there's a lot of things like that that the modern or western elements were primarily taken for the Japanese market and they wouldn't be bought by the foreigners who wanted to see the sort of more traditional Japan as it were but this is actually one of the interesting things about the Japan album because the Japan album does have examples of photographs showing modernization or westernization of Japan, which makes it a really fascinating object. Yeah, definitely. So it's quite interesting how the new Japanese native photographers were taking on the practices of these initial Western photographers who came in. And the fact that they continue to do these staged photos for a foreign market in mind, it sounds like they've also, they're perpetuating this orientalist approach or this this kind of othering of japan as the mystical orient is that the impression that you got right well i think it may not have been sort of intentional it may have simply been these sell so let's continue to do it it works um, often actually the same photographs from earlier period were sold on to different people uh, that's what makes identifying who was the initial photographer so difficult because people the same photograph continued to stay within the market as the rights could be sold on. Often photographs were attributed to the sort of the biggest name in the studio when that was not necessarily the person who took it. And all of these things to um, 
help for sales. But yeah, it is interesting, the fact that looking at it from a period now, you would think that it was this othering, but at the time, maybe that was not their intention. Yeah, sure, definitely. I don't think the, the Western photographers would have thought that they were mm. othering. It would just have been the mode of thinking at the time. But yeah, it's just a interesting point. So did you get a sense in your research for the sitters in the staged photos, who they were, why they were participating, uh, and their thoughts on these ex exaggerated costumes and scenes? I think it's very, very difficult to tell. I talked about earlier how the, many of the women uh, were actually prostitutes living hard lives and you couldn't tell this at all. So no, I think actually you don't get a sense of who the sitters were at all. It's so staged, it's so choreographed, the, they're taken completely out of context. And there is being some really interesting research done about um, putting the sitters back into focus. And that sort of juxtaposition between the sitter's real life and what they were portrayed as within the photograph. Yeah. So with the photographs that were taken by Roberts, were there many which uh, had people as the subject rather than dirt corners? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I can't say for certain they were taken by Robert Rowe. They could have been taken by an acquaintance. Okay. But the, in general, there are a lot that are very similar to the professional views photographs in that they take photos of temples, bridges, beautiful landscapes, all these sort of things. The more personal ones, there are a few pertaining to people. There are the doctor's house where each of the, uh, the Western men in it are named. There is another one that shows a visit to his friend's house um, or Suvin's house, which shows... Um, a sort of Western man and uh, a whole bunch of Japanese people. And it sort of shows how these men could often live above their means when abroad. So uh, compared with the cities, you can see a bit more about how people were living at this time from these photos. So if you were to put Japan into an image search engine today, you instantly get these famous landscapes like Mount Fuji and Kinkakuji and so on. Having analysed the Japan album, how much of the past exoticization of Japan do you think persists in photography today? Well, I think that's a very interesting point. Obviously, today, I mean, in very general terms, when people think of Japan, they think of the sort of two sides. They think of all the sort of modern, the manga, the anime, the sort of high-tech things. And then, But we're talking more about when they think of, say, the more traditional and historical aspects and when going through the Japan album, it definitely jumped out at me that I was seeing a lot of the same places that come up when you Google Japan today. The same sort of the temples and stuff continue to remain of interest. And I think this continuation is interesting because for my paper, I also read a lot about tourism and some tourist guides to Japan. And reading the tourist guides, obviously there were many differences but the way they talked about Japan and visiting Japan was remarkably similar to a tourist guide you'd see today things along the lines of come now to see real Japan before it changes if this if you do this you'll see like the actual side of the Japan all these things that literally could be in a guidebook today so I think that that mirroring that continuation was very interesting wow. that's uh in light of our earlier conversation about othering of Japan, you know, that's a, <laughs> a really interesting comparison to think that in some ways not much has changed. But uh, yeah, fascinating. 
Well, thank you for answering all my questions, Zoe. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? And can we hope this dissertation might be published someday? <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly hope so. Um, but no, I would love to continue to sort of expand on this. I think there's so much more to do. I hope to be in Japan at the end of November. So there are, um, when I was doing this dissertation, obviously because of COVID limitations, I couldn't visit places or collections, but there are some really great online collections like the Harvard Library website had a great one, and also the Nagasaki one, university website, had quite an extensive collection of these photographs uploaded. So whilst in Japan, I'd love to be able to visit them in person, and I think that would be great. So yeah, I'd like to further this research, you know, sort of being able to do much more comparison and also hopefully looking at the sort of Japanese literature and what Japanese academics are thinking around this subject area. Yeah, great. I can tell you from my narcar experience in Japan that about 90% of it is not online, so you should find some amazing stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you for joining me on the show today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to Zoe's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Hiroshi Ota, professor at the School of International Liberal Studies at Waseda University, to discuss Net Zero Japan. With the COP26 gathering and a recently leaked document serving the Japanese government as one of the many lobbying for climate change to be taken off the UN agenda, I asked Hiroshi about the rhetoric and actions of the Japanese government in the face of climate change. Together we explore why they are reluctant to impose serious reforms of their energy policy and what alternatives exist for their dependency on fossil fuels and nuclear power. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.